Let's take a moment before we begin this morning to pray and ask for special guidance and blessing as we open God's Word together. This is part two of the short series that we're doing, God's Plan for Society. And uh, in this message this morning, I pray that God will show us some things that perhaps you haven't thought about as you read the Old Testament. So that's, that's my hope. And the other goal that I pray that will happen this morning that will take place is that you will lose all confidence in man and his ability, and even in your own. Amen. So let's take a moment to pray together before we begin. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your wisdom. We are grateful for the history that we have in Scripture. We're thankful for the opportunity to learn from the past, to learn from what you have done and what we have failed to do. Father, we're thankful for Jesus Christ, the sin-pardoning Savior, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He truly is our only hope on a personal level and as a body, as a church. Father, bless us as we listen to your words today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So over the past couple of weeks, all eyes in the American media and among world leaders have been on what nation? Afghanistan. Afghanistan, that's right, and the withdrawal of our military there. Our hearts especially go out this morning to those that have lost loved ones as a result of the terrorist attack this week. What began for us as an effort to avenge the terrorist attacks of 20 years ago devolved into the, an exercise in nation building, it seems. I don't think it was totally inappropriate to try to prevent terrorism to develop from developing in the region, but uh, we got into trying to reshape the nation of Afghanistan. We tried to make a nation with very different values and customs into a liberal Western democracy. How did that go? I don't think it went too well. If the images and the reports of the past few days tell us anything, it is that those efforts have failed. I think Americans have forgotten two things about America. For one, I think we've forgotten the context in which America became a nation. This nation grew up near the close of the years of papal persecution and domination of the nations of Western Europe, and our founders were anxious to set up a society in which such atrocities would never be repeated. The historical context means a lot to the development of the United States, and of course Afghanistan does not have this national heritage. But second, and more importantly, I think we have forgotten that this nation is a nation called out in Bible prophecy. In other words, God called this nation out and set it up as a refuge, at least initially, as a refuge for the oppressed, those that were being persecuted by the Church of Rome. In other words, we are what we are because God ordained it to be so. And if we remember these two things, we might understand why the liberties we enjoy here in this system of government that has served us so well for so long has not been so easy to replicate around the world. 
It is not a mere commodity that can be exported. This is what we refer to as American exceptionalism. And the reality is that freedom is not some sort of inevitable destiny for earthly societies, is it? No. Instead, it is the exception, not the rule. The fact is that society tends not towards liberty and freedom, but towards tyranny and oppression. History demonstrates that with abundant evidence. So having said that, uh, I would like to remind you again why I am giving this series of messages. Perhaps some of you think that I am seeking to make some sort of political statement. Nothing could be farther from the truth. If you thought that, you guessed wrong. On the contrary, what I am seeking to do by pointing out these things in Scripture is to strip away all confidence in what can be accomplished in any earthly society by any set of politicians, Democrat or Republican. Of course, many of us are deeply concerned by what is happening in our country and in our world. There is no question that our God-given rights and liberties are being trampled underfoot. Would you all say amen to that? Would you all agree? But I have news for you, friends. Things are going to get worse, much worse. And there is nothing that any political party or politician can do to heal the division in our nation or to make the American experiment ultimately succeed. The painful truth is that it will ultimately fail. This has been prophesied in the Bible. And we dare not set our hopes on the American experiment as it is a blessing to be raised here, born and raised here in the United States. How many want to say amen to that? Amen. Praise God. We could have been born anywhere in the world. Thank God we were born here. But our hope is not on America. Our only hope is in the soon return of Jesus Christ. Even Jesus, when he comes, will not engage in nation building. Rather, he will utterly destroy the nations of the world, symbolized by the stone striking the feet of the image in Daniel 2. He will deliver us from the tyranny of earth and take us away from it to heaven where we will reign with him for a thousand years. This is what the Bible says. Amen. There will not be a nation left on planet earth after Jesus comes for a thousand years. Why is it, you ask, why is it that Jesus will not rework society and sit as monarch over the nations? The answer to that is very simple. He has already demonstrated that this sort of nation building in this present sinful world will not ultimately work. How can I say that so confidently? Very simple. We have in Scripture the record of such an exercise in divine nation building. Where do I find it, friends? In the Old Testament. <laughs> well, you guessed right. The scripture reading, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, there is a lot there that we will explore this morning. But in the, in the record of the history of ancient Israel, we see that div even divine nation building doesn't work. Now, before I launch into the main course of the sermon, let me point out 
that I believe we must read the Bible in a more practical and a more discerning way than we have been used to doing in order to prepare for the last days. How many of you agree with that? Yes. Too often we make the Bible merely esoteric, a collection of beautiful stories, but we generally fail to make the application for our own lives. Isn't this true? This is especially the case when we read the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament chronicles the history of a people separated from us by a, to a great extent by time and even by customs, we often make the mistake of thinking that its message has little or nothing to teach people that live in the 21st century. This is often the mistake that the unbelievers make. They will look at the Bible and say, what can I possibly learn from this old book? But friends, if we read the Old Testament with new eyesight, if we read the Old Testament through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, we will find out something that its message is equally important for us as is that of the New Testament. It is in the Old Testament that we really learn who and what man is and why even a divine effort at nation building failed. I say it failed not because God failed, but because the people with whom he was working failed him. They did not stick to his plan. But before we get to this conclusion, let's observe a few things about God's effort at nation building. First of all, I want to point out that, and this is looking at our scripture reading, so I hope you'll turn there and follow along. The founding of ancient Israel was done, first of all, with a perfect constitution. We have our own constitution here in the United States. But Israel had its constitution, and guess who gave that constitution to them? No set of men, but it was God himself that wrote and ordained the constitution of ancient Israel. What, could, what founding of a nation could be more auspicious than this? Think of this promised uh, new nation about to take root in the land of Canaan, <clears throat> conceived in the liberty of the gospel, a nation to which God was speaking through his prophets. Surely if nation building could ever succeed, it would be successful in this case. So let's look at our scripture reading, Deuteronomy 27. We'll begin with verse 1. Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. And it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. You shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones, which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. 
Now, something that sticks out at me right away is the repetition in this passage. Yeah. Several times God tells them to, be, to make sure that they wrote all the words that he had given them, all the commandments, all the statutes, all the judgments on those stones that they were to set up. Now, some of you uh, understand a little bit about the climate of Palestine. Is it a dreary, Seattle-like, Portland-like climate there where it rains all the time? In Palestine? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a sunny, generally drier climate. It's not too dissimilar from Pagosa Springs, except they don't get all the snow that we get. What would whitewashed stones look like in that kind of a climate? You think they would get your attention if you were just passing by? Yes. Oh, my. Those things would stand out for miles and miles. You could see them. Why did God tell them to write every word of the law on those stones that were whitewashed with lime? What was that for? What would be the equivalent today? Put up billboards, right? And make sure that they were lighted up at night. God wanted everyone to see, these are the principles. This is the constitution by which this nation will operate. He wanted to make that very plain to everyone. And I want to also uh, note here in verse 6, I'm sorry, verse uh, 5. And six, what else were they to do at this uh, inauguration ceremony? Altar. They were to build an altar of whole stones. They must have had an abundance of those. So again, sounds quite similar to Pagosa Springs. For those of us who uh, big, uh, dig and, and build things, there's always lots of stones around. They must have had plenty of those. They were to build this altar of whole stones and do what on that altar? Offer sacrifice. So what do we have here, friends? We have a nation that is being inaugurated and dedicated with both the law and the what? The gospel. Right? The, the sacrificial offering was, what was that for? Were they to only to think of, a, uh, of the literal lamb that was being sacrificed there? Oh no, they were to be thinking of the Redeemer that was to come. And that Redeemer is who? Jesus Christ. So here you have a nation that is being founded on these two great principles, the law and the gospel. Now what more uh, promising beginning could you possibly have than this? Think of it. They were to put all those words up there and any travelers <clears throat> coming and going would see those stones and be able to read exactly what this nation was all about. I mean, what could possibly go wrong with this beginning, right? Was this the right way to, or the wrong way to begin a nation, friends? Oh, it's the right way, isn't it? What could have been better? But there is more to intrigue us in this situation. Now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. <clears throat> Not only did God set up the constitution of the nation, but there are some things that bear a great resemblance to our own nation here. 
in how Israel was set up. Deuteronomy chapter 1, I want, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to begin with verse 10. <clears throat> the Bible says, the Lord your God has multiplied you, and here you are today. This is Moses addressing the people for the final time. Here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord your God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Choose wise understanding and knowledge of knowledgeable men from among your tribes and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, the thing which you have told us to do is good. Moses is reviewing the history that took place in Exodus chapter 18. He's reminding them of how they came to govern themselves as they, as they did. And verse 15, closing the passage. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. Now here's another principle that should give us encouragement for this great ancient experiment in freedom and liberty. Many actually misunderstand the governmental principles of ancient Israel, though. We are accustomed to calling Israel a theocracy. How many of you have heard that term before? Okay, that's a familiar term. There is a sense in which that is true. Many people call it that. It's not necessarily wrong to name Israel as a theocracy. But as we note in this passage, Israel's government also had structure on the human level. It was not that God told them audibly and explicitly what to do in every particular situation. They had the words of the covenant, as we pointed out a few moments ago, but they also had a self-appointed leadership structure that was sanctioned by the prophet. In other words, they had a government of the, what, everyone? Of the people. And it was chosen by the people. And it was for the people. Do you wonder where we got that in, in, here in America? We think that's a new concept. No, it's an ancient concept. Right here in the Bible, you see it. Ancient Israel was a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Unlike the nations around them, there was no ruling class in Israel. There was no elite group that felt entitled to positions of leadership. The divine right of kings was something that would have to wait until the Middle Ages to be developed. Anyone who was committed to God and had sufficient wisdom, life experience, and a righteous moral character could be chosen to be a leader of his brethren. Would to God, friends, that we would select leaders today based on these same principles. Do you think the country would be in any better shape? I think it would. Perhaps the church would be too. And because there was no strong central government structure, the leaders of the people could always be held accountable by their local constituents and could be replaced if they were found to be covetous, self-interested charlatans. Now, I think we would all agree that this plan would tend to produce a government with minimal corruption, 
a government that truly represented the interests of its people, and a government that would be anything but oppressive. Would you agree with me there, friends? In fact, it was not until Israel chose to have a king over them that they experienced any significant infringement of their liberties. But their early history, uh, based on their early history, they were exceptional in the world. They were a nation without a king. Can you imagine? Just like the United States is a nation without a king. That was the, that was the great uh, point of where people were awestruck at the founding of this country. They said, how can you have a nation without a king? Well, it's gone fairly well for 200 and almost, well, for over 200 years. But there's more even than this to explore. Let's continue reading in Deuteronomy chapter 1. We'll start again with verse 16. Not only do we have a government of the people, not only do we have a divinely ordained constitution, but we also see that another important element in God's nation-building program, equal application of the law. Notice Deuteronomy 16, or sorry, Deuteronomy 1, verses 16 through 18. Moses says, Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren, and judge how, friends? Righteously. Righteously between a man and his brother, or the stranger who is with him. Now here's a key uh, element, right here in verse 17. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence. For the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring it to me, and I will hear it. And I, I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. Now, clearly the nation of Israel had a judicial system. Many nations had this, but what made the judicial system of Israel exceptional was not its existence but the fact that it was to equally apply the laws to every citizen. That wasn't the case in the other nations. In every verdict handed down from a Hebrew judge, the participants in the trial were to see a reflection of that great day when we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment was to be righteous, according to verse 16. In other words, it was to be done in accordance with God's righteous and holy law. Every process of judgment was to be carried out in a manner that was in harmony with God's character of love. But beyond this, the Hebrews were explicitly warned in verse 17 not to favor anyone in the judgment, regardless of their person, position, or status in life. The modern ideas of diversity, equity, and inclusion would have had no bearing on any case in ancient Israel. Rather, each case would be judged righteously, meaning it would be judged on its merits. We refer to this principle in our modern American Constitution as the Equal Protection Clause. That's part of the 14th Amendment. This is defined as the right of all persons to have the same access to the law and courts and to be treated equally by the law and courts, both in procedures and in the substance of the law. 
But as you can see, this principle was not new when it was incorporated into the Constitution, but rather it existed from Scripture from its very first pages and in the heart of God from all eternity. God is no respecter of persons, friends. Could you say amen to that? Let's say amen one more time. He is no respecter of persons, regardless of how they look, regardless of how much money they have, regardless of whether they come from a so-called marginalized group or whether they're part of the majority. It doesn't matter to God. We will all stand before God in judgment, and the judgment will be righteous. Can you say amen? His judgment is always righteous and just. And so it was to be in ancient Israel, and God still desires that it would be that way everywhere today. Now, I've saved one of the most interesting aspects of God's nation-building exercise for our fourth and last point. And that is the fiscal policy of ancient Israel. How many of you agree that that's an important aspect of nation-building? You know, if you don't have a sound economic policy, how in the world can you get anywhere? It's an aspect of God's plan upon which we don't often reflect, but we should. We can learn a lot that would be a blessing to ourselves, to our community, and to the church. Conspicuously absent from God's directions for ancient Israel was any sort of taxation plan. I don't think you heard what I said. <laughs> there was no taxes in Israel. No taxes. Yes, they were to return tithes and give various free will offerings as part of their religious duty to support the priests and the Levites in their spiritual work and to support the upkeep of the tabernacle. But beyond this, we read of no income tax, we read of no property tax, we read of no sales tax, and we certainly don't read of any wealth tax. Taxation did not occur until what period in Israel's history, everyone? When they got the king. Yes. When they asked for the king. And you remember that Samuel warned the people about that before he went ahead with the plan. He told them that the king would do nothing but take from them. He would take this, he would take that, he would take their young men, he would take their oxen and their sheep and so on. He told them very specifically, if you opt for this monarchy, you will be taxed. Of course, of necessity, when the monarchy came, what happened to the size and scope of their government? It grew significantly and it became more centralized. And of course, then it required the taxation of the citizens to support it. Does any of this sound familiar to anyone? There were also laws that would tend to discourage the acquiring of debt in Israel. Deuteronomy 15 verses 1 through 10 speaks very clearly to this. Listen to these words. I hope you'll follow along. Deuteronomy 15. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall do what, everyone? If you're following along. Release. release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called 
The Lord's release. Who commanded it? God did. It is the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother. Except when there may be no poor among you. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. Notice, please, debt was not something that the average citizen would be involved in. It was something that the poor would be involved in. And therefore, if there were no poor, there would be no occasion to borrow. And therefore, there would be no need of the release. Does this make sense to everyone? Now I'm going to continue reading. Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren... Well, before we, get, before we continue with verse 7, I just want to point some, one thing out here in verses uh, 5 and 6. Do you notice the connection between economic uh, freedom from debt and superiority among the nations? Do you see the connection there? What's happening in America right now? Are we, are we liquidating our debt are we paying off our debt or are we preparing to take on more and more and more? I think this is a very disturbing situation because debt places you under those to whom you owe it. But continuing on with verse uh, 7. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, the seventh year of release is at hand. See, this was on a schedule. It, was, it had nothing to do with how long you have, uh, are holding the note. You may lend in the sixth year of release, and in the next year, you would have to forgive the debt. Now, there, what would be the uh, reaction of most people under those circumstances if you were somewhat of means and somebody approached you and said, could I uh, borrow uh, you know, a couple thousand dollars from you? You would say, well, what are you, I, this, is, this is nuts. This is a terrible business proposition. The year of release is next year. I can't do that. I'm going to be out the money, possibly. What does God say to that? He says, Beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and, give, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give it to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give it to him, because for this thing, the Lord your God will do what, everyone? Bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. In other words, your business will prosper even more if you treat your poor brother like this. In other words, if you lend him what he needs. 
Even though the year of release is at hand, even though you think, well, I may not get that money back. God says, I can give you more than that. We get the distinct impression when we read this that the norm, I think I pointed this out a minute ago, but I'm going to repeat it because it's in the manuscript. We get the distinct impression when we read this that the norm in Israel was to be debt free. As an Israelite, you only went into debt if you experienced some sort of misfortune, crop failure perhaps, the death of uh, the breadwinner of the family or something like that. Israel was never to become a nation of debtors. Also, you will notice that the longest period that anyone could remain in debt was what, everybody? Seven years. No 30-year mortgages. And I think they have lot. Don't they have 99-year mortgages in California? I, I, I think I read that at some point. That was a few years ago. Of course, this plan was predicated on the honesty and the integrity of both the borrower and the lender. There was to be no working the system. That would have been considered theft and probably would have been punished as such. The borrower was to do all he could to faithfully pay off the loan, and the lender was to recognize that everything he had was the Lord's anyway and to render assistance when it was needed. I'll point out that in the fact that another thing that the Israelites were not allowed to do was to charge interest on loans to their own people. They could charge interest to foreigners, but not to their fellow Hebrews. Leviticus 25, 36 speaks to this. In fact, in Nehemiah's time, he rebuked the elites of Israel for doing that very thing. And he said that they were out of harmony with God's will. Now, another interesting aspect of Israel's divinely ordained fiscal policy was the treatment of the land itself. <clears throat> Note these words from Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23, through 20, 23 and 24. God says, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. Now, I want to point one thing out to you. Who, whose land was it? Who did God say the land belonged to? His. It was his land. He said, the land is mine. I think it's important for us to recognize this in this age and generation in which we live, where we hear so much, of, so much about the rights of so-called indigenous people. Now, I don't think indigenous people should be mistreated, they shouldn't be cheated, they shouldn't be harmed, and they shouldn't harm or cheat anyone else. But here's the issue. All the land belongs to who, friends? God. And if God wants to settle various people in a certain land, that's up to him, isn't it? There is no inalienable right that any of us have to any piece of property on planet Earth. God owns all of it. And so therefore, he can do with it whatever he wants. And in this situation, he specified that they were not allowed to sell the land permanently to someone else outside their family group. Now this is, uh, this is very important. 
And it's a great contrast to where they came from, the people of Israel. God ordained that his people would be possessors of land, not simply tenants. In Egypt, the working class, of which the Hebrews formed a significant part, were just that. They were tenants. They were renters. They did not own their own land or dwellings. We know this because at the time of Joseph, what happened to the land? What happened to the land in Egypt at the time of Joseph? You've read, their, you've read your history, I hope. What happened? They sold the land to Pharaoh in exchange for food. Okay? Pharaoh, the crown, acquired all the land in Egypt in return for the support that they offered in the uh, storage of the grain. That situation was subsequently exploited by the Pharaoh who came later and did not know Joseph. God would not allow such a situation to exist in Israel, so he outlawed the permanent sale of the land. By the way, this is what got Naboth killed. You remember Naboth, the one uh, who was approached by King Ahab, and he, King Ahab said, sell me that piece of land you got there where your vineyard is. And Naboth said, I'm sorry, king. Can't do it. <coughs> Naboth was following this principle to the letter. And of course, King Ahab wanted to hold the land permanently. He was not concerned with following God's plan. And so he had Naboth killed. Or I should say, Jezebel the queen arranged for Naboth to be killed. So if any Israelite sold a piece of land, he had the opportunity to buy it back at any time. And though man, the person to whom he sold it would have to offer it back to him for sale. If he couldn't buy it back, one of his relatives could do it. This is what happened in the story of Boaz and Ruth. You know, it's a beautiful story. There are a lot of great lessons there. But one of the things that the story of Boaz and Ruth teaches us is how things were supposed to operate in ancient Israel. What kind of a place was it? And you see Ruth, the one who was a Moabitess, converted to the faith of Israel through the witness of God-fearing Israelites and how God took care of her and her mother-in-law. But if no one could buy the land back, there was still a provision to make sure that no person in Israel would be landless and no person in Israel would become a land baron. In the year of Jubilee, which happened every 50th year, the land would revert back to the family from which it had been sold off, whether it was redeemed or not. How important do you think it is to God, that we become owners of our own homes. I think it's his will if we can possibly do it. Would you agree with me? All right. So given all that we have examined in relation to Old Testament Israel, its divinely inspired constitution and laws, its government of the people, by the people, and for the people, its just and fair legal system, modern, modeled after God's own process of judgment. 
and its sound fiscal policy, which was uh, designed to encourage prosperity and discourage debt. The question immediately comes to mind. How is it possible that such a nation failed to become the greatest nation in history? How could such a nation fall? All God's wisdom, all God's promises that they would be the head and not the tail, all God's intervention in their battles. It seems that all that wasn't enough to prevent this potentially great nation from failing to live up to their potential. Now, if that was the case when God was the nation builder, what makes us think that any nation today or any set of people, no matter how many degrees they have, no matter, no matter how many experts they have among them, what makes us think that any nation or set of people today could succeed in creating a utopia where God could not? Our progressive friends, I think, believe that they can do it. I think we're going to have to wait until heaven. What do you think? But the answer to this perplexing problem is clear when we read the Old Testament. The answer lies in verses like this one. Psalm 78, verse 8. Listen to these words, please. Speaking of Israel... He says, and that they may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Mm. Would you like to know why this great nation of Israel with all its advantages was a failure? The answer is simple. It was because of their own selfish, iniquitous hearts. In one sense, it is the pride of man that is really at the root of all of it. The pride of man that seeks to do things in any other way than how God says they ought to be done. And yet, that same pride of man will be very quick to copycat others that are not following God's will. In other words, the pride of man says, I'm not going to follow God's plan. What does he know? And yet, they're willing to race after other nations that have tried the same things and failed and say, well, we're going to do that. Isn't that what the Israelites did when they asked for a king? They said, make us a king so that we can be like all the nations around us. It was it was. It was too wearisome to them to follow God's plan, which would have given them the ultimate freedom that was compatible with law and order. They wanted high taxes. They wanted a king that was going to take their liberties away. They, what were they thinking, friends? And yet this is the perversity of the human heart, is it not? The pride of man, the selfishness of man, the stubbornness of man. What is it that brought mankind down from his exalted position in creation after all? Was it not the exploration of this very same thing, iniquity and selfishness and pride? The serpent said to Eve, Eve, 
<clears throat> yes, I recognize that you have uh, a perfect existence in this perfect garden and that you have almost unlimited freedom. But why would you want to do it God's way? Do it your way, Eve. You know best. You can know good and evil for yourself. This is what we talked about last time. Now you see its application in the realm of nations. And every one of us is tempted to do this very same thing, are we not? Every one of us is tempted to ignore God's counsel and will for our lives in this very same way. Every one of us is tempted to give up the freedom and the liberty that God offers us in the gospel and choose the slavery of Satan and sin. Am I telling you anything you don't already know today? Why is this? What would make a free people choose to be slaves? I do not understand, except that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah said. Who can know it? There is no understanding of the human heart. There is no explanation for why people would choose these things. Friends, my appeal to you this morning is quite simple. What path are you choosing? Will you choose the freedom that God holds out to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, through his mediation in the heavenly sanctuary? Will you, will you embrace that freedom? Or will you say, like ancient Israel did, no, I would rather have a tyrant, a king over me, like all the nations, like everyone else. I want to live the way everyone else lives. Do you realize that everyone else is under the domination of the evil one? Why would we want to live that way? Why would you choose that? Why would I? So I'm just asking you this morning, as we have our benediction, I'm not going to ask people to come forward today. I usually don't do that, but I always try to call for you, on you and myself, to make a decision about what we have heard today. May God help us each one to choose liberty Amen. and to put no confidence in what nation builders in this world can do, but instead look forward to the heavenly society which God himself will create. Amen. And he will do something before he does that. He will create in us clean hearts so that we can enjoy that freedom that he's going to create for us. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.